radio station XITM is on the air. Jimmy, some of what you were talking about last time was making my head hurt. Suppose I don't care why anything exists. It just does. I'm here. You're here. We're all here. But where's Broadway? I want to find out about these worlds, especially the multiplicity world, where there are lots of gods and animals and strange beings and powerful humans like me, because that's the world I live in. We'll get there, sweetheart. But we still need to put a few more things on the table to understand why these five different worlds are an interesting way to think about the things that do exist. And we're still left with a dilemma. In the case of everything that exists, we haven't explained how everything came to exist. Because for everything that exists, like each of us, it can be said we might not have existed. Each of us is a contingent being in that sense. So looking for a cause of something existing seems quite natural to explain why something exists. Yet the explanatory cause for things existing may itself be contingent, possibly not having existed, because it hasn't been shown why it must exist. So in the end, we may be left without anything like a final explanation. When you think about it, your existence, everything's existence, can become quite unsettling. But thinking about what some final explanation must be is even more unsettling. Suppose a final explanation points to some uncaused cause of what exists, some kind of being that cannot not exist. It necessarily exists. Well, we sort of understand those words, we can say them. Perhaps we can even imagine something that must always just exist, kind of like its own brute fact. But when we try to imagine the idea of being in more complexity, we run into problems. Our mental apparatus slides into thought about some being. For example, can such being cause the absence of something? cause the non-existence of something. There is something odd, unsettling in saying it could. What would it be to cause something's absence? Is there a list of things that could possibly exist, but that are chosen not to exist? Things caused not to exist, so to speak? Things that could possibly exist, but in fact never do exist. Well, if the condition of their absence is caused for all time, then it would appear they could not possibly exist. We're not talking here about some being that could cause what exists to cease to exist, like the Hindu's Shiva, the being called the destroyer of worlds. 
We're talking about being that explains the existence of everything, that ought to be able to explain the absences of things as well. But those words seem empty. Imagine all the things that could possibly exist but don't, and being just sitting there on its own. How could such being be of any religious significance? or serve as an ultimate ground that explains the meaning of things. But does thinking of the universe as infinite in space and time compete with its being a contingent being? Well, the Dr. Angelicus, St. Thomas Aquinas, tells us the universe depends on God not only for its production, but also for its conservation, its continuance in existence. And if God is infinite, the universe, dependent on God for its very existence, must be finite. The infinite is the producer of the finite. Time itself had a definite beginning in the past. Yes. Well, Thomas Aquinas may not have been interested in a temporal first cause, a, a beginning cause, only a sustaining cause. But evidently, Thomas thought the world could be eternal. He believed it was not eternal on the basis of revelation. It was the cosmological argument of the medieval Islamic Mutakalamum tradition that looked to establish a temporal beginning of the universe. Al-Ghazali in the 11th century held that everything that begins to exist must have a time-dependent cause of its beginning. Anyway, suppose we derive our concept of cause from the observation of things. How can we even ask for a cause of the existence of something like the universe in its entirety when that is something of which we cannot have experience? Imagine a child traveling up an infinite mountain whose peak is always beyond view, infinitely distant, one could say. The child experiences sand and rock, sharp increases in elevation, but the child has no concept from experience that there is a mountain peak. Its experience is just of a certain land formation. The child may have been taught the words, this is a mountain and it comes to a peak, but exactly to what the words refer is a product of the child's imagination not its experience. It's not always clear what one can infer from experience. After days of climbing and observing, suppose the child realizes the individual rocks are all quite small and getting smaller. So the child says, the mountain I'm climbing cannot be too big. That would be what Russell called a fallacy of composition, where if the parts of something have a certain property, the whole need not have that property. Similarly, if the components of the universe we experience are contingent, this doesn't necessitate that the entire universe is contingent. Perhaps just a certain theology tells us the entire universe is contingent. Perhaps it's just our part of the universe. What is unproven by science may yet reveal something else to say. Some energy states may be non-contingent. If contingent can be applied to all that exists, what does it distinguish? For David Hume, 
when the parts are sufficiently explained, the whole is explained. Asking for further causes of the whole, he called an arbitrary act of the mind and unreasonable. But in what sense is the whole explained by reference to every member of the same collection? We have explanations for every part of a battleship. We know how it was made, what each part is to be used for, but does that give us the purpose of the ship? So the author of the manuscript says, of the universe, I cannot conceive of its purpose. Perhaps in the expression, imagine nothing exists. Imagination has no place. There is simply no conceptualization that occurs. Immanuel Kant found the concept of a necessary being suspect. He understood necessity as a form of logical necessity in which to deny something's existence is contradictory. But anything we can think of can be imagined as not ever having existed without contradiction. The key is in understanding what can be thought. In Kant's case, it was the proposal of a being for which one is asked to conceive of it as necessarily existing. But perhaps when applied to everything that does and could possibly exist, it feels as if there is no room for the denial of existence. James, you've been talking about causation at the macro level. At the micro level, most mathematical formulations of quantum mechanics are fully deterministic. The basic mathematical account of a quantum system is provided by the wave function, symbolized by the Greek letter psi, which represents the quantum state of the system at any given time. Without interference, the quantum state evolves over time according to the Schrodinger equation. This is a continuous, time-symmetric, deterministic process. But when one needs to determine the value of a particular parameter of the system at some particular time, making an observation or taking a measurement involves different process. One is given a set of possible alternatives for the parameter with respective probabilities for each possible outcome. Exactly what happens at the moment of observation or measurement is the subject of considerable debate. In the reality of the macrophysical world, the wave function appears to randomly jump to one among the set of possible alternative states with a corresponding designated probability. This observed or measured stabilization of the quantum state is referred to as the collapse of the wave function. After observation or measurement is made, the new wave function, psi sub n, recommences to evolve deterministically according to the Schrodinger equation until further observation or measurement is made. Right. The two procedures you just described represent one of the uncomfortably strange features of quantum systems. It's the idea that the act of determining the quantum state of the system at any given time evokes two distinctly different and opposing procedures. One is continuously evolving and fully deterministic. 
the other is random or discontinuous and probabilistic. This disjunction forces a distinction between predictability and causality. From Heisenberg's principle of uncertainty, individual subatomic events cannot be precisely predicted. Is this inability to predict due to the absence of sufficient causal conditions? Or is it merely the recognition that any attempt to precisely measure these events alters their status? Yet, how is one to know what is happening without introducing observers into the situation? If the introduction of the observer affects what is observed, does it follow that effects occur without sufficient or determinative causes? Well, if you take Heisenberg's indeterminacy as describing not the events themselves, but rather our knowledge of the events, causation may still hold. But to what use? Even this cannot be expected to achieve determinative predictability about what occurs on the subatomic level. And if indeterminacy is a real feature of the world at the quantum level, this has negative implications for cosmological arguments for some first cause or God or necessary being that depend on an underlying causal principle. Then from observations of the world that attempt to reach a first cause that is God who gives the world purpose, perhaps this is the time to remind you what Bertrand Russell said back in 1948. He considered the second law of thermodynamics that sees heat always moving in the direction of colder objects. So not all heat energy can be converted into useful work. This introduces the concept of entropy, where systems irreversibly become more disordered. Russell found the possibility of a first cause providing purpose to the world unattractive, to say the least. He said the universe has crawled by slow stages to a somewhat pitiful result on this earth and is going to crawl by still more pitiful stages to a condition of universal death. If this is to be taken as evidence of purpose, I can only say that the purpose is one that does not appeal to me. Russell saw everything in the universe having an overwhelming tendency to run down, to degrade and wither. But what about principles of plenitude, under which the universe contains all possible forms of existence? Given infinite time, all possibilities are actualized. Some regard this principle as a consequence of quantum mechanics or Hugh Everett's many worlds interpretation of it. The idea is as old as Plato's Timaeus. Physicist Murray Gilman revived a version in his belief that whatever can exist must exist. The late Harvard philosopher Robert Nozick offered a similar fecundity assumption. Nothing remains merely possible throughout eternity. Given infinite time, all permanent possibilities are realized. All very good, but against the imaginations of plenitude, 
physicist Brian Greene, like Russell, finds the universe governed by entropy. This is increasingly supported by astrophysical observations of a relentless slide from states of highly ordered low entropy into increasingly complex disorder. The origin of our actual universe, a supremely ordered low entropy kernel of energy, underwent expansion in a process of rapid inflation into the galactic structures that formed the universe in which we now live. But the irreversible steady increase of entropy will lead only to a uniformly disordered, cold, lifeless emptiness. That is the destiny of the arrow of time. And principles of plentitude may briefly allow for reversals of high entropy, but in the long run, the result is the same. Entropy wins. Brian Greene is right. So the second law of thermodynamics allows for local low entropy states of high organized matter, even the kind that formed galaxies, stars, civilizations. But their existence is always matched by the wasted energy they produce. Humans may come to live very long lives. The universe continues even longer, but in the end, Entropy prevails. The universe will hold no room for us. Well, because it requires a temporal arrow that moves only forward, entropy competes with principles of reversibility in physics. The laws of physics are time-symmetric, equally applicable forward or in reverse. Now, perhaps it is true that in closed systems, one might say entropy distinguishes future from past, but living systems appear open in the sense that their local entropy can be reduced. As the living entity matures and grows into adulthood, it becomes both more complex and more ordered. It reaches the maximum effectiveness of the capabilities that lie within the living system. One could call that the purpose of living systems. Of course, the law of thermodynamics holds that the larger system, which includes the environment, is the recipient of increased entropy, and that would be true of individual living systems over their complete lifespan. But is the second law of thermodynamics an account of entropy in only macroscopic processes? Because at the quantum level, processes occurring forwards or backwards in time look no different. The author of this manuscript thinks that theology, which seeks an explanation for how things are in the world, including that there is a world, informs how religious concepts arise and acquire meaning. Well, that's also beginning as a scientist does. Rather than seeing science and theology starting off in two entirely different places, but they end up with different criteria for what counts as an explanation. When you wonder about the context in which a concept like God has meaning, you're asking about how the concept can be meaningfully shared, what counts as meaning. So we need to consider how the concept appears in the phenomena of human religiousness, 
as forms of behavior and in systems of shared beliefs. Now, the classic scholarly approach to addressing the profusion of worlds of religious phenomena and confusion about their meanings is to ask for accurate definitions of religion and what it represents. Ah, definitions. Ew, definitions. Well, academics come up with definitions of what they think religion represents, definitions that often reduce religion to something more familiar. Whether these reductions are accurate accounts of what is going on with religious phenomena is another matter. The manuscript uncovers some 49 definitions of religion. I think we can treat them under several different groups, but it's worth reminding ourselves of the use of definitions when we need to identify a religious practice being misrepresented, often when attacked from the standpoint of another religious institution. We also need to consider how religious phenomena occur within the experience of the individual, apart from how it appears in the context of religious institutions. So group one defines religious phenomena as social constructs. Religion serves specific societal functions. Religious beliefs create and preserve structures of communal meaning, of accepted behavior and custom. Religious myths provide ideologies of the origin and continued existence of these ritual practices within the community. And since doing this reflects prevailing social norms and values, religion also reveals prejudices held by dominant groups within a society. The anthropologist Clifford Geertz defines religion as a cultural system. Religion serves an ordering function in society. Its institution constructs an interlocking system of symbols that define the general order of existence. These symbols are then clothed with an aura of factuality that are capable of receiving the allegiance of individuals. So group one is a definition of religion as a deliberate, rational construction by society. Group two definitions of human religiousness focus on how religion serves a primarily psychological function. Its most radical version is Ludwig Feuerbach's understanding of religion as anthropology. By this, he means that the real object of religion is not a transcendent being, but simply the projection of human attributes onto the infinite. Religion is a dream in which human conceptions and emotions appear as separate existences, beings living in a reality outside of ourselves. Understanding religion as fulfilling psychological needs is addressed in David Hume's Natural History of Religion, 1757. He argues that the first ideas of religion arose not from a contemplation of nature or transcendent reality, but from a concern with regard to the events of ordinary life. Religion provides answers to the incessant hopes and fears that actuate the human mind. Now, at this point, the question arises, does religion serve a positive psychological function, or does it reflect neurotic or psychotic feelings and behavior? 
Some non-theistic religions, philosophical Buddhism, for example, promote disciplined beliefs to enable spiritually oriented self-help, self-improvement. Theistic forms of religion are also used for self-improvement. The Christian-oriented Alcoholics Anonymous Mutual Support Fellowship, for example. One mildly negative view of religion as an expression of psychological need is found in Sir James George Fraser's The Golden Bough, 1890. Here, religion serves mostly as a propitiation or conciliation of superior powers that direct and control the course of human life. Far more negative is William Wundt's Ethic, completed in 1903, where all religious feeling is understood as simply being wish fulfillment. But it was Giuseppe Sergi's Dolore e Piacere, Pain and Pleasure, from 1894, that reduced religion to a pathological manifestation of the protective function. Religion represented a deviation of normal functions caused by ignorance of natural cause and effect. This view culminated in Freud's understanding of religion as comparable to childhood neuroses. One subset of defining religion as serving psychological need is to conclude that religion is essentially a private matter. A.N. Whitehead regarded religion as what an individual does with his solitariness. James Madison saw religion as a matter of private conscience, a personal relationship between oneself and his God. At the other end of this spectrum is Carl Jung's understanding that religion reflects universal cultural archetypes embodied in a collective unconscious. Myths and gods that represent functions of the unconscious are reenacted over and over in versions of the great mother, the hero, the tyrant father, and other archetypes who represent structures of the relationship of the ego and the unconscious. Group three definitions give attention to the content of religious belief, doctrines and dogma maintained by some structure of authority. One example does not fall under any specific faith tradition. Herbert of Sherbury, father of deism, speaks of five common religious truths present everywhere. First, acknowledgement of the existence of God. Second, the duty of worshiping him. Third, piety and virtue as chief parts of divine worship. Fourth, repentance of sins. Fifth, punishment and reward in this life and after death. The details sound Christian, but were meant to be a universal definition. His account was echoed by the definition of religion in the Oxford English Dictionary of 1971, recognition on the part of man of some higher unseen power, having control of his destiny and being entitled to obedience and worship. The idea of divine authority supports the function of doctrine in most structured religious traditions, a set of rules of behavior accepted on the authority of revelation. This is the understanding of the Abrahamic traditions of Western religion, Judaism, Christianity, Islam. The content of faith includes also a divine plan and the reality of divine action in human history. 
Group four definitions gloss explicit rational doctrines and characterize divine authority as mystery, not just any mystery, but mystery which produces an experience of awe and wonder. Friedrich Schleiermacher called this the feeling of absolute dependence, a state of consciousness of being in a primordial relation to God. The quintessential statement of human response to mystery was that of Rudolf Otto in Das Heilige, the idea of the holy, 1917. He defines religion as giving expression to our direct experience of the holy, the experience of the numinous, that which is holy and utterly other. Experience he characterizes as mysterium tremendum et fascinans, a mystery at once terrifying and fascinating to which we are simultaneously repelled and yet drawn as we are fearful but also drawn to the violent thunder and lightning that punctuate a summer storm. Such powerful fear-producing yet attracting mystery is present in Hebrew scripture's description of the theophany at Sinai in Exodus 19, where Yahweh is depicted with images of a great mountain storm. Group five retreats somewhat by defining religion as a literary or mythic construct. Religion functions as a device to support human imaginative needs. The most reductive form is Hobbes' observation that to say God has spoken to him in a dream is no more than to say he dreamed that God spake to him. This definition places religion in the hands of ancient poets and storytellers who adopt myths of oral traditions or who invent new myths wholesale. In time, these stories come to form the basis of organized institutional religions. Religious stories serving literary purposes is seen as early as ancient Mesopotamia. During long trading caravans or in the courts of reigning kings, leisure time provided ample opportunity for recounting myths in storytelling entertainment competitions. A less reductionist way of interpreting religion as a literary construct is Mercia Iliada's comparative studies of hierophanies. These are manifestations of the transcendent realm of gods, ancestors, heroes that are recorded in literary myths and function as cultural ideals. Because there is an absence of ultimate meaning in the profane realm of everyday human experience, the actions and the commandments of gods or heroes in a sacred realm transmit a model of ultimate value and purpose to the profane world. Manifestations of the sacred in literary myths ontologically found the world. And through repeating such myths, human experience in the profane world acquires its true reality and meaning. So repeating the myth of the epic Ethiopus in the cycle of Troy ontologically founds a world that recognizes feminine power. Even after her death, Achilles still falls under the sacred power of Penthesilea, queen of the Amazons. Only fear that it does, my beautiful one. Group six definitions of religion should appeal to Alistair. It's part of finding a basis for human morality and ethics. 
the attempt to find a rational source for human moral awareness takes us beyond institutional religion where codes of ethical behavior can frequently appear as violations of morality. First, there are those who see religion as part of a general attempt to deal with what is chaotic and incomprehensible in nature. Herbert Spencer in First Principles from 1860 speaks of religion as a quasi-scientific hypothesis that seeks to render the universe comprehensible. One of the earliest expressions of the idea that nature itself presents patterns that can be discerned and serve as a moral guide for human life, for living in harmony with nature, is Lao Tzu, the sage of ancient Taoist thought. But the locus classicus of understanding religion as moral theology is Immanuel Kant. Kant reinterprets religion, absent its speculative metaphysics, as embodying a philosophy in which freedom, God, and immortality appear as postulates of pure practical or moral reason. That is, they serve as conceptual pointers to our moral awareness and our sense of duty that is derived from reason alone rather than revelation. The idea of religion as moral theology is expressed by Unitarian minister Theodore Parker. He finds that most of religion is transient and passes away. What is permanent of unchanging absolute value is pure morality. Ralph Waldo Emerson also voices this moral theology, but in a way that deliberately includes our relation to the natural world. In his Divinity School Address of 1838, Emerson extols the secret, sweet, overpowering beauty of nature and then relates it to an even deeper beauty, the beauty that appears when our hearts and minds are open to the sentiment of virtue, when we are aware of the moral law written on our hearts, meaning the moral law is already there within us. The unity of God, nature, and our moral sense had been the understanding of religion of Spinoza. True religion is an attempt to understand nature and live on the basis of the simplest moral law, free from clergy-imposed doctrines or ritual practices. In effect, his was an argument for radical religious freedom, and in the Tractatus Theologico-Politicus of 1670, Spinoza distinguishes religion from superstitious beliefs that arise from fluctuating human emotions. So what are we to make of all these definitions? Philosophers frequently call for definitions as a way toward solving chronic problems. Define your terms is the banner they stride beneath. Definitions hold out the promise of bringing conceptual clarity where before there was none. But in the end, definitions, as Wittgenstein often worries in the philosophical investigations, don't do much to resolve the fundamental paradoxes of human experience. At best, they provide a semblance of clarity we impose. From the standpoint of definitions being informative about what it means to hold such a concept 
as an ultimate ground of being and meaning, it might appear we have come nowhere because we have still not addressed the underlying question of what kind of entity such a thing as a ground of being or its equivalence to God really is. What are the possibilities of the phenomena in which such an idea arises? And exactly to what do those phenomena point? Where they point perhaps does not matter for the piety of one who seeks only to live the true moral life, but that may be only if truth about the nature of the being in question is irrelevant. Well, you've covered a lot of ground today, James. I think we should take a breath and come back in two weeks and think about these definitions and how they might apply or not to the experience of the individual who confronts their own sense of an ultimate ground of being and meaning over against the pronouncements of religious institutions.